I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 189 of the Intercooler Podcast. I'm Dan Prosser. Andrew Frankel is my co-host. This week, we're talking about the people from the world of cars and racing who we have most enjoyed meeting over the years. Um, Some of them you will have heard of, others I suspect you won't have heard of at all. Uh, And we also share a couple of people who perhaps were a disappointment to meet. Um, So that's coming in a moment. But before we do that, I'm going to remind you all, because it's Christmas season, that you can give a subscription to the Intercooler as a gift You can choose between 6, 12 and 24 month gift subscriptions starting at just £35.99. If you choose the 24 month option, you save 16% on the standard cost. We send you a digital gift voucher immediately, which you can share uh, digitally with the recipient or you can print it out and put it in a card. Um, So it's really easy to do. You don't have to go and queue up anywhere, battle the all the other Christmas shoppers. It's really simple. We think it's a great gift. Just head to the-intercooler.com forward slash gift dash subscriptions and you'll see uh, the three gifting options there. You can just head to the to the homepage and find the gifts page. I'll also put a link in the description of this episode. Um, so yeah, if you're looking for the perfect gift for the petrol head in your life, think about a subscription to the intercooler. Right, let's get on with this week's podcast. Importantly, this topic, Andrew, is more about the people we have really enjoyed meeting. It's not necessarily the most famous people or the biggest names or the people we've been most privileged to meet. Um, And actually, in my case, I've got a couple of people who our listeners might never have heard of, but I've thoroughly enjoyed meeting them. Um, I think just because we don't want to leave people shortchanged, we're going to have to do a couple of people we haven't enjoyed meeting so much. 
Um, <laughs> I, I've yeah. only got one, I reckon, but hopefully you can do a bit better. Yeah, um, I, I, I can probably just rustle up a few. <laughs> um, now, this isn't going to be a bragathon. This is not about the superstars we've been privileged enough to meet. But let's just get, out, get that out of the way. Conventionally speaking, who do you think the most famous person you've met in this sort of line of work is? Ah. Well, the obvious one that springs to mind is Senna. Oof, blimey. Um, I wouldn't say I how knew many, him. How many Instagram followers would he have now? <laughs> Quite a lot. <laughs> Quite a lot, but I couldn't say that. I mean, so, so most of the people, I would say all of the people on my list, um, whether they're well-known or not, and some are and some aren't, uh, are people, they're not just people that I met and never saw again. I mean, if you went up to Senna a week after I saw him and said to mm. him, who's Andrew Frankel? He wouldn't have had a clue, mm. even though I spent an afternoon with him. These are all people that I can say uh, that I know. Mm. Um, so him and other people that I can say that I know and who equally would know me, I guess Rowan Atkinson, because Ooh, wow. he and I, and Sterling, obviously, while he was with mm. us, um, mm. Sterling was you know, a close friend. Uh, Rowan is, is absolutely not, but we've raced old cars together. We did a bit of work together once um, on something, and you know we've had a number of conversations, and you know we yeah stuff like that. So he's, I guess, Rowan is probably the most famous person alive today mm. who I could say that I know a tiny bit. Okay, so I, I clearly don't know either of these two, but I have met them and had brief conversations with them, um, Keanu Reeves and. Matt LeBlanc, who, I mean, Hollywood actors, but they're, they're sort of tied into the car world in some way. Um, Keanu Reeves, well, he's got a motorbike company. I think it's called Arch Motorcycles. And, of course, he did the, the Braun documentary recently. Matt LeBlanc, um, I met him on the Top Gear set. Um, and actually, the, the funny thing about Matt LeBlanc is that we somehow got on to talking about old Mercedes, and he started reeling off W numbers. There you go. You could always tell people know their W. It's like people who know their E numbers with BMWs. Then you just see that you suddenly, if someone could tell their E36 from their E46, yeah, yeah, then yeah, and their W123s from the W124s, you just know they know, don't they? Yeah, he he clearly (laughs) knew. It was it was unbelievable actually. Um, He clearly knew much better than I did. Yeah. Uh, So that is a that is a car guy. Um, Also, hang on. um, Our mutual friend Chris Harris, um, who talks very honestly to likes you are about who he does and doesn't get on with um mm. he really rates leblanc doesn't he i've never met him but he really rates leblanc he thinks he's a he's a genuinely proper person yeah 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 i think he loves him actually um yeah. so must be a decent guy um God, i think you're gonna absolutely school me with this topic um, <laughs> i think so, it was your idea <laughs> it was it was my idea Okay, well, I'm going to hand uh, the baton over to you to get us started then with okay. someone you've enjoyed meeting. Well, I mean, are we <coughs> are we talking about industry folk or? I mean, <coughs> I've got I've, Take I've, your I've, pick. Probably, I've probably got ten drivers down here. Um, it's easy to default to drivers, isn't it? It's, it's very, very easy. easy to it's very easy to to default to drivers. Um, okay, this guy's a driver. Uh, and I've known him for a long time, but I wouldn't say that I know him well, but he's not. So, well, he's someone that a lot of people will have heard of, but absolutely not everybody, because he's, although he's a driver and he's one of the most gifted drivers I've ever been driven by, he's not, he's not a name. He's not famous as a racing driver. 
I give you Mr. Raffaella Di Simone. Oh, yeah, fantastic. You're probably at Fiorano, aren't you? I am at Fiorano. This is yeah. Ferrari's... He's the bloke who they always wheel out when they're launching a new fast car at Fiorano. And out comes Rafa, and he takes you around in the car for a few laps, makes you feel thoroughly un- inadequate, while he's, you know, he's quietly sitting there, you know, one hand on the steering wheel, explaining the various functions while drifting the car at 140 miles an hour, and you just come away from it feeling utterly useless. Um, but he's also just a lovely, lovely guy, and he listens. He's not, he's not one of these guys, because he's in a position where he's got the information and you need it, where he's therefore always on transmit. He's always asking, and he's good enough to look like he actually means it. He's always asking you about the car and what you think. And also, when he sees you, he goes, I'm not going to do the accent. You know, <laughs> hi, Andrew, it's been a while. What have you been up to? And yeah. maybe he's just been to chance school. I, I think he's just a really good bloke. Mm. Mm. Yeah, he's, um, he's a very cool guy. Actually. Do you know anything about his background? His, I've never looked into what he raced or what sort of level he got up to. Well, I mean, I think, I think like lots of those guys, and I've had conversations with people who are, I mean, you know, Matt Becker, who's another guy who's actually on my list. Um, Same. The, the, the very famous um, Lotus, Aston Martin, now JLR, and was almost briefly McLaren um, chassis engineer. Um, I, think I, w- I think I was standing in a signing on queue at Snetterton for some reason, for some race I was doing, and saw Matt in the, in, in, in the queue and said, what are you doing? You know, I think he was racing a Fiesta or something. <laughs> Um, and you know he must have been I don't know in his I don't know maybe in his early thirties or something. And I said you know he must get to race all sorts. And he said no, this is the first race I've ever done wow. because because his entire life is spent driving cars on tracks. And I mm. think Rafa has done a lot. I think I can't remember. I think he's done maybe he's done some Italian touring cars. Maybe he's done some GT3 that sort of stuff. Mm. I don't know. Um, but I think when you say to him why aren't you off, you know, racing prototypes? He said, well, because I'm here. And he gets to drive everything Ferrari that produces. And, you know, that's probably enough to be going on with. Yeah, he's a cool guy. And you're right. Whenever you jump out of one of his cars, <clears throat> he comes over and asks you what you think. And he listens, mm. Mm. which is interesting because there's nothing we can tell him about his cars. But he's, he, he actually genuinely is interested in our point of view. And he also, he knocks around Maranello and Modena in an ancient Fiat 500. Um, he just seems like a like a cool guy. He's a, he's a dude. Yeah, yeah, he is. Um, all right, I'll go. So this was a very sort of structured, formal roundtable interview thing um, at Red Bull Racing at the factory um, with Daniel Ricciardo and Max Verstappen. So this is 2018, just before the British Grand Prix, when Aston Martin was involved in that team. It's weird to think, isn't it, that there was that tie-in, and now yeah. they're actually rivals in Formula One. Yeah, um, and the point about meeting those two, and they were sort of one after the other, but they overlapped and they were in the same room for a little while. <laughs> there were no surprises; they were exactly like they seem yeah. on television. Now I don't know; maybe they were just in sort of media mode, and they always are when they're on television. But you got exactly what you expected from both of them. So Ricardo was very talkative, very easygoing jokey but also you know he gave considered answers to your questions and detailed answers he want he seemed to want to help you do a good job he told us all about his aston martin valkyrie that he had on order um and actually i, I remember him eyeing up the cookies on the table the far end of the table 
and he was sort of umming and ahhing about having one. And eventually he decided that he would have a cookie. Um, but he just, he just sort of came across as like, actually just a normal bloke, I suppose. And then Verstappen, the opposite, maybe not the opposite, but very, very different. It's not that he was rude or unpleasant, but he was straight to the point. He was very brusque. He had sort of, you know, perfunctory answers to questions. Sort Gave of giving the impression, the impression of not wanting to be there. Yeah, like he couldn't get out quickly enough. Yeah. Um, oh, who knows? Maybe he just doesn't hold journalists in very high regard, which is fair enough. Oh, I suspect oh, well, plenty I of mean, them have given him a hard time in the past. I, I, I have seen this a couple of times. You know, when you are, well, the couple of, um, well, Senna was one and Loeb, Sebastian Loeb was another, who's in public persona compared to their in private persona. Couldn't, it's like flicking a switch. Mm. It's like flicking a switch, and they go yeah. from being exactly what you say, very brusque, um, direct, short, curt, not quite rude, but getting towards that way. And then you get them on their own. And I spent, you know, very small periods of time on my own with either centre or low. But they just, I mean, you would not, you know, if they didn't inhabit the same body, you wouldn't have recognised them. Mm. I'm sure so, that's So who it. knows? I mean, I don't, know, I don't know anyone who knows Max personally. So I don't mm. know what the answer to that question is. Maybe he's like that in private, but um, mm. who knows? Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Um, all right, let's have one of yours then. Okay, so now, I think I'm going to have to do a grouping. Yeah. Um, because I've, got, I've just got so many names here. So I'm going to group together a load of what I would call more senior British racing drivers, mainly coming from the sort of sports car arena. So in this group, we have we have Derek Bell, we have Richard Atwood, um, we have Brian Redman, and we have David Hobbs. Um, mm. I don't know David that well, I know him a bit. All the others I know reasonably well. And they're just all uniformly, utterly brilliant people. Mm. They are so funny. Um, <laughs> they are so full of fantastic stories. Um and I mean, it, it's honestly, it's like I pay to see him on stage. They're just when they're relaxed. And Sterling was the same when he was relaxed, and he was another person with a rather different private to public persona. But these guys actually just do it just as well, whether they got a crowd of you know thousands or it was just you talking to them. They're just such amazingly good company. They they take the piss out of each other relentlessly, um, mm. and all wear it in very good humour. Um, I'm a bit in awe of them still because they're all in their sort of you know probably all in their 80s now. I think they are all in their 80s now. Mm. In fact, they are all in their 80s now. Um, but I know what they did and the kinds of things that they drove and the risks that they took and the places that they and the friends that they lost. And I can't quite divorce all that from the genial old bloke having a chat, I'm having a chat with. So I'm in awe mm. of all of them. Um, mm. Of them all, Richard Atwood's the one I know easily the best. Um, and he and I are genuinely good buddies um and he is one of the funniest he's one of the funniest people he's, he's one of the most dryly funny people you'll ever meet um and he is so modest he's so understated um and Derek Bell I spent a bit of time with Derek actually this year in um at the Rensport Porsche event at, yeah. at Monterey I think Derek's 82 now um he looks about 52 uh and He's just, we got to the stage with him where he kind of like trusts you. Um, and, yeah. and, there are, and there are lots of other people on this list, actually not racing drivers, 
um, maybe their industry executives or whatever, that your relationship with them has developed to a point where they don't have to say, oh, this is off the record, or I'm not going to tell you that. They just tell you because they know that you know where to draw the line and, wh- and, and to not let them down. Um, and I can remember I was, uh, I was in the back of a car with Derek tra- traveling from the hotel we were both staying in up to Monterey. Um, and he, he, was, he was just talking about getting old and his family being a bit concerned um, with, you know, as I think we all are, you know, if we have parents who may loosely be described as, you know, as, as elderly and they're still trying to race cars and do that sort of thing. There's a natural sort of concern there. Um, and he was sort of, you know, he was getting, he was getting a bit sort of gruff about it in a, in a, in a rather sort of touching solicitor's kind of way. And I just remember sitting there thinking, it's just, it's very nice that he feels he can just sit in the back of a car and chat with me about this sort of thing. Mm. Um, mm. And, and he is a lovely, lovely guy. And, you know, if you think that, you know, works Ferrari Formula One driver, obviously works Porsche driver all the way through the Group C era, five of them all wins, all the stuff that he's done. Um, and yet, he hasn't turned into a twat. And I just, I, and I think sports cars, sports car drivers, I think are a very special breed because they have to share. They have to think about other yes. people because you wouldn't be very good at your job if you didn't. If you just brought the car back every time in bits with things hanging off it, uh, you wouldn't be a sports car driver for very long. So you have to be considerate. And, 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 and as a breed, uh, I mean, I don't know like you don't. I know you know lots of rally drivers. Um, I don't know rally drivers at all, really. But as a breed, sports car drivers are by and large a brilliant bunch. I'm not sure I ever met one I really didn't like. I met a few mm. Formula One drivers I didn't like. But yeah, so <laughs> that lot. Do you know, I knew that hearing you talk would remind me of some people that I've really thoroughly enjoyed meeting. Oh, I'm terrified um, of the people I'm not going to mention. I know, I know. They're going to come to us later on in the, in the week, aren't they? And we're going to think, goodness me, how did I forget that person? But you have just reminded me of Martin Brundle. <clears throat> and oh, you, well, uh, yes. you were talking, you were talking about grouping people in together, um, and imagining these people taking the piss out of one another and just having a great time. Yeah. I, every year, and I think it's probably around now, you know, coming up to Christmas. What do they call themselves? The Rat Pack. The likes of Brundle, Damon Hill, Johnny Herbert, Blundell. Mark Blundell, yeah, um, those guys—they all get together for a Christmas meal, don't they? And you see the picture on Twitter. Um, but, and, and I'm sure, I'm sure they just have a great time, just reminiscing and taking, taking the, the piss out, out of each other. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, I, I had dinner with um, Brundle and a, just a couple of other people in Mexico City before the Mexico Grand Prix. Um, I was out there with Jaguar to drive the stunt car from the new James Bond film, Spectre, yeah. you know, the CX-75 Jaguar stunt car. And the Jaguar PR people just invited Brundle to come have dinner with us on the Thursday evening or something. And he said, yes, okay. And so there I was in this lovely restaurant in Mexico City, sitting opposite Martin Brundle, just thinking, how has this happened? But then he's so talkative, so easy to just chat to. And within minutes, he was telling me all about racing Ayrton Senna in British Formula 3. Yeah. And for a, a motorsport fan, for a car guy, you know, forget the... I wasn't a journalist then. I was just a fan. Yeah. And it was fantastic. And the, the thing that he told me about Senna was that even in that year, he knew Ayrton Senna was a bit different, a bit special. And this was when he was trying his damnedest to beat the guy in Formula 3. And he was the only one who could get anywhere near him. And you would think that maybe just to try and give himself some sort of psychological advantage, he might 
pretend to himself during that year that Senna was overrated or whatever. But actually, none of it. He just he knew he knew the bloke was special. Yeah, um, and so it proved to be. Yeah, I, I actually had exactly that with um, Jonathan Palmer, who's another bloke who I know. Yeah. I know Jonathan really pretty well. Um, and I think one of the things that I found um, was exactly that. He said exactly the same thing about when Jean Lacy became his teammate in the very early days of telemetry. Um, and, you know, he's, you know, Formula One drivers, they're meant to have these massive egos. And I remember yeah. just saying to me that, you know, the first time they saw his traces overlaid with the Lacy's, he just thought, well, that's it. I can't do that. Wow. And, and the self-awareness. Yeah. But then again, you know, guys like Jonathan um, and Mark, goodness, Martin in particular. Um, I got to know Martin when he was racing Bentleys 20 years ago. Um, and I was sort of seconded to the team to write a book. Um, and so I've kind of known him a bit then and ever since. But I mean, I can remember sitting in team debriefings where Martin has, you know, they've been testing somewhere and they, they sent him out on a set of tyres. And he'd done 40 laps or whatever, and he's come back. And he literally almost gives them a lap-by-lap download. They've got all the telemetry. And they'll be sitting there and they go, oh, you're a three-tenths down there. And he said, yeah, I know, but I ran wide at turn four, whatever. And it's all in there. Wow. And it is. <clears throat> and the, thing, the other thing with these very intelligent people, particularly someone like Martin. Martin was also massively into road cars. Mm. He asked questions. It's not always a one-way street, me going, so, oh, what was it like to race centre? Um, he'll say, oh, have you driven the such and such? What's it like? And he'll really want to know. Um, and he's also, because he's just, he's just a complete petrol head. And if you find yourself in the company of someone who shares your passion, it's always easy, isn't it? Because you can tell and they can tell and you're kindred spirits. And yeah, and, you know, although Martin you know, has gone on to achieve the most... Oh, see, and Murray. You see, Murray is another one. I didn't have, didn't have Murray Walker on my list. It's terrible. Oh, I'm going to wish I'd never done this. Yeah, they're uh, going to keep oh, coming. We'll, we'll do a second episode. Yeah, um, so, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Right, okay, move on. I'm, going to, I'm going to do one that people um, will not have heard of, I'm confident. A chap called Carsten Shebstadt. Um, people, German... including me. <laughs> there you go. German chassis engineer, vehicle dynamics engineer. Brilliant, brilliant engineer. Um, he was at Porsche when you know around the time of the 997 gt3 and the gt3 rs yeah um so he was involved in engineering those cars so he, was a, he, he was a proininger protege yeah, but he's a proininger guy yeah yeah um and he's so not I, on my list i met him yeah i met him when he was working at vw i think he's still at vw uh he does the sporty stuff so the gti's and the golf r's and so on <clears throat> and i knew that we were in a volkswagen tuareg prototype somewhere in spain i think and we is a long road route me him two other guys we had a long way to go and i knew he had worked with walter roll one of mm. my heroes and so i just said to him tell me your best walter story and he delivered a stone cold classic um it was such a good t- story i hurriedly i got my phone out hurriedly noted it down on the the um the notes app on my phone just in very shorthand um and then i screenshotted it and posted those on twitter and that tweet went about as viral in my own minor way as anything i've ever done has gone yeah um, because it was such a great tale and i thought actually i'd just read it very quickly now remember this is purely in note form 
Porsche engineers were benchmarking the 997 GT2 at the Nürburgring in 2007. They had a Lamborghini Gallardo Superleggera and a Ferrari 599 GTB. Walter Roll was setting the lap times. He went out in the Lamborghini first, then the Ferrari. When he came back from setting the lap time in the 599, he had a huge smile on his face, according to one of the engineers, Carsten. The engineer asked him what he was smiling about. Roll explained that halfway around the lap he had seen another 599 in front of him, a few corners ahead, and he said to himself, I will catch that other 599. So for the second half of the lap, Walter Roll steadily gained on that leading car until at the final corner going on to the long main straight, the leading car had a big oversteer moment. Roll squeezed through on the inside into the lead. Having got to the paddock, Roll drove onto the public road to cool the brakes down. The second Ferrari followed and pulled alongside. They both stopped. Roll lowered his window. The other 599 lowered its window to reveal its driver, Michael Schumacher. <laughs> he said to Roll, I had to see who was quicker than me. Now I see it's you. It's okay with me. Later that evening, in the Piston Klaus, the story was doing the rounds. At some point, the Sachs engineers who had been working doing some suspension tuning work with Schumacher that day, arrived. They said he was furious when he got back to the garage. He instructed the engineers to check every nut and bolt on the car, refusing to accept that Roll had been quicker. Wow. That's from Carsten Shevstad. That's just amazing that these things go on, isn't it? I just think it's fantastic. Chasing Schumacher around the ring. Yeah, I mean, it's... um... But you can believe it. You can see it happening, can't you? Credit to Schumacher for being gracious, at least in in Royal's company. You know, that can't have been easy. But actually, this it leads me on to another one. Um, it, it follows on because Walter Roll is absolutely on my list of people I've thoroughly enjoyed meeting. Um, he, he can actually seem quite shy. Even when you're talking to him, he... Maybe there's an almost nervous air about him. But I was... <clears throat> this, we were up in Scotland for the launch of the 718 Cayman GT4 a few years ago. Um, he's a two-time world rally champion, hero to me. And so I was very lucky to get to be driven around Knock Hill for several laps in a Cayman GT4, which is a hell of an experience. What's interesting is that he's so unflustered and driving so quickly, it must all just seem actually quite tame to him. You know, it's not a very powerful very quick car it's a fairly fiddly circuit but you're not going to hit anything really it compared to a rally stage so he's just he's so within himself and after the the handful of laps we pulled into the into the paddock and I knew I just wanted to try and get another story out of him because I knew he'd have something um and I asked him about the Carrera GT which he was I guess he was lead development driver for that car and he told me about this this occasion at the Nürburgring, again, I think it was around 2004. Um, the magazine, uh, I can't remember which magazine it was actually, one of the big German car magazines set up a test where all the main um, big German car companies took their latest high-performance cars with a professional driver um, to demonstrate them and to, to set lap times and they would all drive one another's cars and you know Audi, BMW, Mercedes were there Bentley as well actually and Porsche 
um, Roll set his lap time in the Carrera GT. Now, clearly, he has a huge advantage because he was the development driver, a lot of that being at the Nürburgring. So off he went, does this lap time. Nobody else got within 20 seconds of him. And the other drivers were Tom Christensen, Klaus Ludwig, who was a, he's a triple DTM champion. So we're not talking about... But he's, but he's, also, he's also King Klaus. He's known as the king of the Nürburgring. Yeah. So he was 19 seconds slower than Walter in the Carrera GT. Um, which, uh, around a 20-kilometre lap, is a second a kilometre, which is a huge margin. Um, and actually, I think probably more than anything, it shows you how tricky, certainly back then, the Carrera GT was. A tough, tough car to ring yeah. a lap time out of, particularly at a track like the Nürburgring. Yeah. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Can I do one? Go on. Okay, so we're back into the realms of, um, well, I know, I suppose, yeah, Walter, very famous man. Um, Gordon Murray. Mm. So Gordon is someone who I kind of, because I, I'm a child of the 70s, um, and I kind of grew up you know, in the era of the sort of, you know, the Brabham Alphas and that sort of thing, and the cars that really yeah. put Gordon on the map. And then his time um, at Formula One with McLaren. So, I mean, he was already a massively famous guy when I first met him, which was when we road tested the F1 um, sort of 30 years ago. And... Going into a room and sitting down with Gordon Murray, it's like, what's it like? It's like going for a long, hot run and coming out really sweaty and somebody sitting you down with a really cold, clear glass of sparkling mineral water. Everything just <laughs> becomes clear. Everything mm -hmm. is just suddenly... You are so suddenly... The room is so full of innovation and ideas and everything is doable and... I mean, he's a genuine, I find him, he's a genuinely inspirational bloke. Mm. Um, because, you know, he's not a young man anymore. He must be in his late 70s. But even now, the way his mind works, um, he, I think he's probably the most consistently interesting person that I know. Probably inside the industry or outside of the industry. Just because he never, ever... Um, He's just never boring. He never has anything mundane to say. He's always challenging. 
you can ask him what a question. You can send you, you can send him a sort of um, a sort of cow pat of a ball, just a really really easy thing he can just swish away, and he'll come back with something totally unexpected. Um, and yeah, he's. I don't know how much time you spent with him, but I mean, the idea of being Borden in the company of Gordon Murray at the same time mm. is it's just, it's just literally inconceivable. And you and you look at his body of work and all that he has achieved, um, and the fact that even at his age now, you know, he is relentlessly pushing forward, um, always um, challenging existing thoughts, never yeah. settling for good enough um just pushing 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 and i wonder for instance if the mclaren f1 hadn't expanded the envelope of road car performance more than any other car in history before and probably since i wonder what other road cars cars like that would be like now would people have mm. really tried that hard but by setting the new standard by literally redefining what a road car could do putting it on a level that not just that others had not been to before but which they couldn't imagine couldn't approach everybody must have just gone oh okay fine we're here now so this is what we need to deal with and it all came out of that mind and i just i just think he is i mean it's probably the most overworked overused word in, in this and many other industries but I, I really do think that gordon murray is a genius oh he is Absolutely stone-cold genius. You in can see technical it. terms. Yeah. Yeah. You can see it in the T50. And actually, the, well, clearly the McLaren F1 was much the same. But when you look at a T50, when you stand by one, first of all, it's tiny. Um, and then it has seating for three. And then you open up these storage compartments in the flanks, and they're enormous. Mm. And it's got... A whacking great V12 that revs to 12,000. 12,000? Yeah. And it weighs, what is it, 1,000 kilograms or something? It's unbelievably light for a V12 supercar, hypercar. And you just think, how has this tiny operation, relatively speaking, Gordon Murray Automotive, been able to come up with this? And everyone else is building cars that are at least three, four, five hundred kilograms heavier. Yeah. Seating for two, have no space for for luggage or anything. How it's, it, it is extraordinary that Gordon Murray and the people he works with, obviously, yeah, that they've been able to produce something like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, the man is um, he's he's a genuine legend of the industry, and um, you know, yeah. I'm I'm very lucky. I think we are very lucky to mm. you know to know him and to you know, get occasionally to spend time with him. Mm. Let me offer Mate Rimac. Everyone calls him Mate Rimac. Of course, it's actually Rimac or Rimats. He is Croatian. But Mate Rimac. Never met the bloke, um, but, but, but I like what I've seen of him. Yeah. So I, I met him, in, I think it was 2016. Here's a brag. I was the first journalist in the world to drive a Rimac. And I, <clears throat> this was long before the Nevera had been seen this was when Rimac was really still a very small company establishing itself on the, on the world stage. So I had Matty there for the entire day. We went off riding his electric um, bicycles. We went to lunch. Just 
had his company for the entire day. He's my age, this guy. Yeah. The so I drove the Concept One, their thousand horsepower electric hypercar. I actually drove it the following day, and it was impressive in some ways, massively flawed in other ways. I actually just didn't fit. It was tiny. I'm you know I'm only six foot tall. I'm I'm not massive. I'm not, not as tall as you, but I couldn't fit in it. It was deeply uncomfortable. So in some fairly fundamental ways, the car was massively flawed. But I saw the potential in it. But what I really saw was the potential in Rimac, the company, and in Matty. Because he started to explain to me everything that the company was doing behind the scenes on the sort of business-to-business side Mm. with electric powertrains and battery technology. And even then, I was astonished at what he had been able to achieve. A, in a very small amount of time, just a few years, B, with no background of his own in the industry, and C, in Croatia. This would be hard enough to do in Warwickshire, you yeah. know? But yeah. to do it in Croatia? Yeah. And I and I by remember... That, you're, not, by that, you're not being rude about Croatia. You're just oh, thinking God, no. about... Um, just just get, finding the talent locally yeah. to do what you yeah. need to do, the suppliers. Yes. Yeah, it's just got this it place with no history at all. There's no industry in that area. Yeah. In automotive, yeah. yeah. Um, and I remember concluding that the, the interesting thing about the Concept 1, and I reflect on this, it must have been so frustrating for them because the way the car industry works, you, you design a car to the best of your capability and then two years later it's spat out the other side and people can drive it. And of yeah. course, in those two years, you learn so much, particularly as a young company, and your capability goes far beyond so actually they were all clearly quite embarrassed to be demonstrating the concept one when already their capability in their heads it was already an obsolete car massively obsolete and yeah. he he couldn't help but telling me every single time that the concept the concept two now the nevera is coming it's going to be lighter well i don't think it is lighter but it, it's going to be better in this way faster everything else mm. um and so he was clearly so frustrated to uh, having to demonstrate what to him was already an obsolete vehicle. Um, But I I just remember thinking that this guy and this company, they are absolutely destined for big things. Um, I couldn't believe what he'd achieved. And of course now he controls Bugatti. Yeah. (laughs) It's amazing. Talking of people controlling car companies i've got another grouping here yeah they're all either still are or have been recently heads of car companies and that's not actually why i'm grouping them together i'm grouping them together because you and i have sat in interviews um with car industry executives who don't really want to be there haven't really got very much to say and you come out of them thinking well, not only did that completely waste my time, but it actually completely wasted his time too. It was a completely pointless thing. Um, and yep. <clears throat> these guys, you sit down with them and it's almost like a kind of like a fireside chat. And what you become aware of after a bit is that they are quite actively and intentionally helping you do your job. Mm. And I appreciate that. So, so um, I actually, um, for reasons I won't bore you with, I, I had an hour with Adrian Hallmark yesterday. Um, who is the boss of Bentley. 
um, and the man who has transformed that business. Um, Adrian, I think, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that he is a he is a visionary, and his understanding of that brand uh, and what is right for that brand um, is simply exceptional. But when we sit down and talk, um, he's 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 phrasing his answers in a way in ways that makes good copy and he knows exactly how to tell you stuff you didn't know without you know giving away state secrets he's always interesting he's always got little anecdotes he's always got he's always backing up his statements with examples and and he's just a dream interview because you know he basically writes the story for you you can almost Mm. just transcribe the notes and publish them um, and I always, always, uh, another bloke who did that, um, who, you know, he, well, in fact, I've got two people, um, Mike Fluitt from McLaren, um, who's not there anymore, and Andy Palmer from Aston Martin, who's not there anymore. And they've both had, um, copped an awful lot of flack for some of the things that they did while they were in charge of their companies. Um, and I'm sure that mistakes were made, and I'm not saying who's right, who's wrong. What, what I will say is that, both of them, when you sat down and you talked to them, were endlessly interesting, and you always came away knowing your time had been well spent. Um, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. It's just, you know, as a journalist, mm. you know, these guys aren't my friends. These these are people who, you know, I like and I know, and I like to think that I get along with. But ultimately, it's a relationship where, you know, they want something out of it because they wouldn't have put themselves up for it if they didn't think there was something for them. I need something out of it because I've got a living to earn. And they understand that. And you kind of like, you, you work together. And it's people who are considerate like that, more than anything else, I just think they're smart. I just think that they sit mm. down with a journalist and <clears throat> come away with something which works for both sides. <clears throat> it's just good business. And I, and I just appreciate them taking the time to take you seriously. Yeah. Yeah, we've all come up against very the opposite of that people who make it very very difficult and there's a great just, one. Actually, it's just a waste of everyone's time there's a great one. ola kalenius um i'm not putting him forward uh, a well I, I mean i do know him and he does know me but <clears throat> i'm not saying that he's one of the greatest people i've ever met but what he is world class at Kalen- I, mean, I, I got to know him a bit when he was head of amg and he's now head of mercedes-benz he's the he's the head honcho mm. at mercedes-benz and if you sit down with him and you interview him he has this extraordinary technique. You can talk to him for whatever you get, half an hour, 40 minutes, whatever. And you can sit there and you think, this is going brilliantly. This is going so well. He's chatting away and he's talking and he's talking and he's talking and it's mm. fantastic. And, you know, it's, you're just thinking, Brent. and you go back and you transcribe the tapes and you realize he said absolutely nothing. It's genius. <laughs> it's, he completely engages you. Um, he's charming. He's such great company. And yet you come away with absolutely nothing. No story. I mean, completely brilliant. Whereas his predecessor, Dieter Zetcher, um, was completely the reverse. His interviews could be, you know, a little bit dry, but he always said stuff. And frankly, mm. I'd rather, I'd rather, that, I'd just rather have people who, who told me stuff, whether they yeah. were, you know, great company or not. Yeah, that's right. Um, <clears throat> so as you mentioned, yeah, I've knocked about with quite a lot of rally people. Certainly at the very start of my career, before I'd ever had a full-time job, actually, I was doing a lot of rally stuff. Um, and a little bit, little bit later as well. And the the fun thing about rallying, even at the highest level, is that there's a sort of humility about everyone because it's not Formula One, and so everyone is so accessible. And if you're in that world, it is a small world, and everyone is available. So 
as a sort of 20-year-old rookie cub reporter, didn't really know anything, didn't know what I was doing. But I had time with David Richards, Pro Drives David Richards, with Malcolm Wilson from M Sport, the co-drivers as well, Robert Reed, who I've come to, got to know really well. He's a great guy, Nicky Grist, um, and David Lapworth as well. And I, I remember having dinner with David Lapworth, who is... He, on the engineering side, he's David Richards' right-hand man at ProDrive. And he, he's, he, we were talking about what makes Sebastian Loeb so quick in a rally car. And he was the first person who's ever been able to explain it to me. Yeah. And he says that what Loeb does is when he's in the car and he's trying to go faster, he doesn't push harder which is what everyone else does. They push harder. They try to go faster. Loeb tries to drive more perfectly because every corner has a perfect entry point and entry speed, braking point, throttle on point, line, all the rest of it. And Loeb is the only one who was able to, certainly at the time, who was able to see all of that stuff and drive more perfectly. All the others, if they were losing time or they had time to make up, they would push harder and probably go a bit slower but Loeb would drive more perfectly there's a there's a great quote I'm going to get it completely wrong but, I, but I'll get the gist of it um, which came from Jim Clark who said when I want to go quicker I don't try to drive faster I concentrate more mm, same thing isn't it that's exactly it isn't it oh fantastic I love that stuff yeah I do love yeah. that stuff. Actually, and although I'm I'm not into the rallying and to anything like the same extent here, in fact, the only time I've ever spent in that world at all was right at the beginning of this year um, when I was very lucky to go and um, chase the Dakar for a few days. Yeah. Um, but it's exactly what you say. It's the, access, it's the accessibility of it mm. and the fact that, okay, so the two guys who I guess, well, Loeb is doing it now, but Loeb aside in the Dakar world, the two intergalactic superheroes are Nasser Alatayah and Stefan Petterhansel. Yeah. And you could just... You, you, you go into... You know, when all the cars are there lying around, either about to start or usually when they've just finished a stage, and they're just mucking about and they're chatting, just walk up to them and they'll talk to you for as long as you like. Mm. It's the, it is so far removed from the world of Formula One. And they're always... you know. They actually seem a bit sort of touched that you're interested in them and what they've got to say. And they will, I can remember uh, NASA just chatting and chatting and chatting about about everything, about you know where he'd come from, where he thought he was going to go to. Um, and, yeah, and again, you just really appreciate them taking the time, don't you? Mm-hmm. Oh, you do. They're good people. Do you want to give us another? Well, we mentioned Proininger, didn't we, briefly? Yep, yep. Um, so Andreas Preuninger, will everybody will know who he is, but on, just in case you've never looked at the intercooler or never read anything about Porsche, he's, you know, for the last, gosh, it must be 20 years, um, he's yeah. been sort of, you know, the man who has certainly the public face and largely behind all the GT cars. So from the second generation of the 996 GT3, he wasn't involved with the very first one, and everything, every GT3, GT2, GT4, um, that's come out since has had his fingerprints all over it. Um, again, when you, okay, when you meet, well, actually when you meet Andy, it's the warmth um, mm. and then it's the intellect. And, and again, he just has this incredibly 
clear thought process um and and he listens and 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 i guess more than anything else he just makes brilliant cars doesn't he uh, this is this, yeah. this sounds like yeah. such sort of loving doesn't it um but you know but but that's the purpose of the of, of the podcast isn't it you know um, yeah, it is, yeah. it, it, it's not just people who we got along with reasonably well or thought was quite bright these 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 are the guys who we really really live up to look yes. up to sorry and and respect and I don't think I've ever heard anyone say a bad word about Preininger. There are plenty of people I've already mentioned who I've heard plenty of people have some very bad words say. But I don't think I've ever heard mm. heard anyone diss Preininger or say, oh, don't you think he's a bit overrated or actually it wasn't mm. all him or anything like that. Everybody just, everybody just loves the guy. Just respects the guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've got a couple that I just want to mention very quickly. <clears throat> Andy Wallace is yes. just the best company Yes. Um, Le Mans winner with Jaguar in 88, I think. Yeah. 88. Um, and McLaren F1 and, <clears throat> excuse me, and Bugatti test driver. Fantastic guy. And whenever you spend time with him, particularly if you have dinner with him, he just reels off these amazing stories. He's a fantastic storyteller. <clears throat> and we've done a couple of podcasts with him. We did a last blast and he was on episode 155. Uh, and listen to those and you just get a sense of what the guy's like he's just fantastic company um you mentioned one of these two but whenever i spend time with matt becker or gav kershaw yeah and we're talking about cars we're talking about vehicle dynamics i basically want to have a notepad out or a voice recording app or something going because everything they say is just insightful and enlightening you just learn so much even from a short conversation with those guys gav kershaw also, being being the well the person who basically took over from matt as the head of yeah. chassis engineering at lotus yeah yeah so they are <clears throat> they're fantastic at what they do they're also just super friendly guys who love cars okay well i mean we, we we're gonna have to wrap them up soon or at least get on to some of the people we don't like um but while we're yep. going through um I'm going to say a shout out. I'm not even going to mention their names because no one's going to heard of any of them. But they are the best bunch of guys I've ever worked with. These are the guys who look after the Porsche Museum cars. <laughs> These are the guys who, time after time, strap me into stupid stuff and just tell me to get on with it. Um, and the, 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 the trust is absolutely... I mean, I think of some of the stuff they've let me drive and no one has ever said, Andrew, you need to be careful with this or Andrew... You can't use more than this sort of res. Or, Andrew, you know, we're, we're relying on you not to stuff this up. They just go, here's, the, here's a thousand horsepower 970. <laughs> go and enjoy it. Um, and they are, and when you come back and you've got that smile on your face, and they really don't care if you're in a 91730 or a single cylinder Porsche tractor. If you come <laughs> back with a smile on your face, they will love you forever. Mm. Um, and they are, they are the best bunch of people that I've ever um, you know, other than the people that I've worked on, you know, because we're employed by the same organisation, that I just sort of randomly come across every couple of years, you know, twice a year or whatever. Um, I always, I, you know, part to me of the entire enjoyment of going and driving some of those cars, whether it's, uh, you know, the uh, Festival of Speed or Revival or whatever, is just knowing I'm going to get to hang out with those guys. Um, mm. Who else? Oh, yeah, I, just quick shout out for Jochen Mass, only because I think he is for reasons which got nothing whatever to do with cars, the most interesting racing, racing driver I've ever spent a bit of time with. Um, he is uh, massively intelligent. 
he is so he's a polymath he knows yeah. so much about everything um and and he's just he, and he's just one of the i once got stuck at the top of the hill um with him i say stuck i couldn't have been happier i was in a 959 he'd driven me up the hill in the 959 i think someone behind us crashed um and so and it was chucking it down with rain and so we were stuck in a 959 for about 40 minutes and he just talked and he talked about we talked about politics and we talked about apartheid and we talked about wine and we talked about food i think the only thing we didn't talk about was cars i never <laughs> said to him what it was it like to be james hunt teammate and you just sit there and you just you just realize that this man is so informed and urbane and it's just it's just a great bloke to spend some time with mm. okay is that the end of the loving it's you're right it has been a loving <clears throat> yeah. we need to redress that balance a little bit don't we okay I feel terrible about this, but we're going to have to do it. Should I go first? Well, how many have you got? I've got two, but they're quite brief. Okay, I don't feel bad about any of mine. <laughs> okay. Um, oh, well, so I, so, so, I, I, may, I may have more than that. I'm not going to go through all of them, um, because you know we're not here to give people a kicking. Um, I can't say that Ron Dennis exactly endeared himself to me. Mm. Um, yeah. On the only time that we've ever been aware of each other's existence, or certainly the only time he's ever been aware of my existence. And to be fair, I was kind of gate-crashing his events, but I'd, be, I'd been told, this was in early 94, to go to the Nürburgring where McLaren was demonstrating um, the F1, this is long before anybody had driven it, to new customers. And Jonathan Palmer was just scaring them witless around the new Nürburgring track. Um, and I turned up there and... Ron obviously had no idea I was coming. I'm not even sure we told McLaren. We must have had, I think we had, we must have done a deal with someone who said, oh, well, we won't tell Ron, but if you turn up, we'll see what we can do. And we just thought we just did it speculatively. Mm. Um, and he was so rude to me. <laughs> he was, I can't remember exactly what he was talking about, but he was, I can remember going on about being a company director and this is what directors got to do. And, the inference wasn't difficult to draw from that. Mm. I, I wasn't mm. a company director at the time. I was a junior envelope liquor at Autocar. Um, <laughs> and yeah, he, he, he made me feel pretty bloody small. Um, oh, yes, actually, there you go. <clears throat> I can relate to that. Go on. Um, so very, very respected, very well-known car designer, Peter Schreyer. Yeah, um, One of the guys... Yeah, one of the guys involved in the original Audi TT, yeah. now at Kia. Um, clearly a great car designer. Look, see what he's done at Kia. You know, yeah, Kia absolutely. before and after Peter Schreier is yeah, yeah. just night and day, isn't it? Um, but I was in Korea to see the new, then new Kia Stinger. And I was told to get an interview with Peter Schreier, asking him to explain the Stinger to me. And so I said hello, introduced myself. I think I was polite. And I said, we were standing next to the car. And I said, so tell me about the, the Stinger. And he gave me a word or two. Hopeless. And so I'm trying to, you know, draw something more out of him. And to be fair, it's a terrible question. But I was just trying to get him to talk a little bit more. So I said to him, do you have a favourite part of the car? And he just very directly quite rudely just said it's it you know something like it's a single car it doesn't have parts or something you know he doesn't think of it as, as having parts or styling elements it's 
it's a hole, it's a cohesive hole. And he clearly just thought I was a total moron. And he didn't try at all to, to disguise that. But how does that serve his purpose? I don't know. It does, does know. it? No. Everybody loses. If someone behaves like that, yeah. everybody, including the person behaving like that, loses. Yeah. It's, yeah. So, it's so silly. It was, it was hopeless. It was unnecessary. You know, he could have just taken literally two minutes just to explain a bit more about the car, why they did what they did, but he just couldn't be bothered. He could be bothered. Okay, um, I'm going to... Well, I feel a bit bad about this because I know a couple of people who know him a bit and say that, A, he's not like this, and if he was like this then, he's certainly not like this now. So I'm talking about Nigel Mansell. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, and I, I certainly know someone who spent a bit of time with him recently who said he was actually absolutely charming. Couldn't have been nicer. But I can only... I've only really had one exchange with him, which was on the 10th anniversary of Senna's death. So this would have been 2004. I, I was commissioned to do a story... Autocar, motorsport, don't know who the client was. Anyway, um, and I basically rang up a load of people um, who were, in one way or another, either because they, you know, designed his cars or were his teammates or were his rivals or whatever. A load of people, um, just to give me a, you know, um, a few memories of, of Senna. And everybody, and I, I can remember talking to Dick Bennett of West Surrey Racing and talking to Murray. Um, and, you know, um, to Martin and, and all the usual suspects. And everybody gave me all the time in the world and couldn't have been more charming. And then I tried to get hold of Mansell and couldn't and got his PA who said, I'll ask. And I then got, I guess it would have been a fax then, saying, Mr. Mansell has agreed to talk to you at this time on this day um, but he needs to see all your questions in advance um, and then he'll talk to you. So, well, you know, I've got to have the bloke. So I wrote down a list, sent it across. And to, to be fair to, to Nigel, he, the telephone rang to the minute. And he went, right, question one, question two, question three. And, and not only was he as short and as curt and as rude as he could possibly be, the entire thrust of what he was saying was to somehow imply that he thought he was at least as good at, if not a better racing driver than Ed and Senna. And it was so yeah. self-serving. And when he got to the end of it, he said, right, that's it, and that was it. And then he just hung up. And it was, it was so unnecessary. It was so unnecessary. But, you know, maybe I caught him on a bad day. And, and again, I suspect it's one of these things where if he knows you or he feels relaxed with you, as we observed earlier with, you know, with Loeb and with, um, and with, with Senna, um, I'm sure he's a very, very different person. But he's always had a, a difficult relationship with the media. Um, mm. A famous Russell Bulger story, two yeah. men but one. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I, um, I met him when I was really just starting out in this industry. I don't know, it must have been 19 or something. Um, and it was super cool to be in his company. But you're right, that point about he, everything that he said seemed to be, yeah, suggesting or trying to give you the impression that he was the finest racing driver of all time. Yeah. <laughs> he did seem to, to have that view. So my last one, and I'll be very, very quick about this, um, was Hanu Mikola. 
1983 World oh Champion. I know. And again, this was, this was years ago. I was probably 18 or something. And this was rally day at Castle Coombe. Um, and I'd gone along to try and do some work, earn a few quid maybe. And Mikola just had zero time for me and had no interest in, in talking to me. I think he answered a couple of my questions very quickly and then just toddled off. And it's just a shame. It's just a shame when, as a, particularly as a young person, when you're meeting someone that you admire because they won the World Rally Championship yeah. and they just don't care. They just don't care. Yeah. Um, uh, well, yeah, yeah and, and contrasting that, I think I've mentioned this story before, and this has got nothing to do with me, but um, I, could, I was once asked to go round the driver's club at the Festival of Speed, asking various drivers what the greatest thing they'd seen all weekend was. And I, I remember asking Sterling what the greatest thing he'd seen that week, weekend was, and he said, Jensen Button. Mm. And I said, why? Well, I, can't, I didn't see his run. Was he amazing? And he said, no, he's got nothing to do with that at all. When he got to the top, you know what it's like at the top of the hill. All the drivers mm. get out and have a chat with each other. And he said, Jensen didn't do that. He went straight over to the spectator stand. And for the half an hour we were up there, all he did was talk to the fans and sign autographs. Mm. Nobody else was doing it. And Sterling just thought that and thought, proper. Mm. Yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? It yeah. says a lot about JB, yeah. Well, I have got a listener question, but I'm not going to do it this week. I'm going to save it because we are going to time out. We are. Um, I think we have. And yes, and um, well, I think that was quite a good topic. Hopefully, not too much of a love in. I think we did. Oh, we could do it occasionally. I know. I know. <laughs> we, we ended on a on a cynical note, so there we go. Um, but there we go. Thanks everybody for listening. Um, do get your listener questions across. Keep them coming because we like ending the podcast that way most weeks, and I promise we will do so next week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.